0: Sure. Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. The digital learning community at ClarkHealingsfund.org provides artists with camaraderie, feedback, and support. It's a forum to ask questions, join private groups to work out professional and business issues, and engage other artists in lively discussions on those types of issues we're about to ponder today. Finally, there's a social network just for professional working artists. Go to ClarkHealingsFund.org, create a free login, and introduce yourself. We're looking forward to meeting you. Now, our guest today is Emily Danchuk. Emily is an intellectual property attorney with over 14 years of experience handling copyright and trademark, including business and licensing agreements, infringement prosecution and litigation, and educating artists on the legal aspects of protecting their work. She's the founder of Copyright Collaborative, a forum for artists to come together and learn about their intellectual property rights. As 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 well as work together to create a culture that deters infringement in the first place. Now, Emily is a member of the State Bar in New York, Pennsylvania, and Maine, where she currently lives. Welcome to the show, Emily. It's nice to have you.
1: Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, It's nice to be here.
0: Now, I'm curious, uh, Emily, when did you get interested in intellectual property law?
1: Well, I kind of fell backwards into it. I actually went in for a job interview after moving to New York City, and I thought it was pro property law, and it was actually for intellectual property law. I don't know how I got the job, but that is how I fell into it. And I had never taken a course in my law school or anything like that. So I didn't I went in blindly, and I've been in it since 2002.
0: I love that story. I think we've all had that moment in high school. You know, math, I thought this was auto shop. You know, (laughs) well, I guess I'll stay. Yeah,
1: most people have it in high school, (laughs) but I had it after
0: law school. I love that. (laughs) Well, so how did you become passionate about working specifically with visual artists and artists in general?
1: I think the short answer to that question is the fact that I I discovered that artists, visual artists especially, didn't know much about copyright. And I got a general energy of powerlessness from them, where they seemed to not understand what they needed to do. They didn't seem to understand the importance of doing the right thing from a legal standpoint, from an intellectual property standpoint. And I think a lot of them, you know, from my early days in practicing in the early 2000s, I found that a lot of artists were lost in this area. And so I wanted to be someone who could offer my, you know, the information that I had gotten from my expertise so that they didn't have to go through what other artists went through and so they could be a little bit more empowered in this area.
0: You know, I'm glad you brought that up because um, sometimes when we talk with people who provide consulting or or insights or information directly to artists. We often focus only on sort of the information, there's a lack of information, et cetera, but we all have access to Google and Wikipedia um, and we have access to, to plenty of consultants. But there is that context, that starting context of if you feel disempowered, if you sort of look at your environment as hopeless or what you're doing is hopeless, or you you don't fully feel like you have the same rights as other people. I I use rights in sort of lowercase, but to to inquire and pursue those things you have coming to you, then often the information can't help you. So I love that you're sort of about um, empowering artists, not just informing artists. I think Um, that's pretty critical for us. I wonder if you can tell me, and maybe this is related to that, Emily, um, tell us more about the Copyright Collaborative. What is it, how does it work, and why did you found it?
1: Well, it's funny that you brought up the idea of, um, you know, if artists have these rights or if people have rights and they don't know what they are, then what's the use of them? So I remember sitting in a law class way before I entered this area of law and thinking To myself and actually brought it up to the class well if people don't know this and this had to do with sixth amendment rights and so i said a lot i said well if people if if your general person doesn't know this when they get arrested then what's it for and so i've always gone through my i feel like i've always gone through my legal career with that i want to say Stone pedal in my shoe where I think it's so important to educate people on what their rights are. And so the way that I got into Copyright Collaborative and started Copyright Collaborative was I went to a trade I would attend trade shows, New York International Gift Fair, which is now New York now. And meet artists and and at that time back in you know 2003, 2004, 2005, every booth was different and it was really exciting to go to that trade show and now it seems that you know over the years people just started copying each other and now it's just a conglomeration of you, you know the same thing over and over again and different you know trends that are every other booth. And so it's a little bit disappointing, but I remember one time I tried to go into a an exhibitor's booth and I had an exhibitor's badge because my clients would get me into that trade show and I would pretty much just you know just be walk softly with a small stick because I didn't want to um, to bother people when they were showing. But I would write down the name of their booth and then I would send them a letter just with some information. But I went in to get in, go into this one woman's booth and she wouldn't let me in. And she seemed very scared and said, "I'm sorry, you're an exhibitor. I can't let you in." And so it got to the point where it was so cutthroat that exhibitors at shows couldn't, you know, had to be very wary about what who was coming into their booth, who was photographing what. And it just seemed to me to be really sad. And so I thought, I, you know, consider in consideration of copyrights and copyright law in the United States and all of the misinformation that's out there on Etsy and other platforms like that, I thought it was just really important to let artists know what their rights were. And so I came across client after client after client who had not filed copyright applications for their works. And there's a humongous difference between a timely registration and a non-timely registration in copyright law as to what kind of um, damages you're entitled to, and which turn out to be leverage when you're trying to settle a case, which most copyright claims do settle. But that being said, I thought it was just really important for artists to understand their rights, because that artistic foundation that that artistic basis that's their entire company um that's their entire that's the foundation of their t- entire business and so i thought it was just really important for them to understand the difference between you know copyright patent trademark trade secret what have you and to understand what they could do to protect their rights and deter, deter infringement that was becoming so prevalent
0: Well, we're actually going to unpack some of those uh, different definitions and issues today. But first, I want to ask you, you know, you've mentioned in another venue that photographers and musicians have been sort of the leaders when it comes to uh, uh, collectivizing and advocating for protection of their work. And of course, you you certainly see, um, you know, issues arising really quickly with inappropriate use of images on the web. Um, photography, namely is music, you don't have rights to you. So is there anything that visual artists can learn from how musicians uh, and photographers have done this or um, to get up to speed more or less in the same way and become equally as empowered in this field?
1: Right, and I think that Fortunately for musicians and photographers, there have been some vicious organizations who have approached the Copyright Office and, and lobbied and vied for certain rights for, for photography and music. So, for example, under copyright law and the way that the Copyright Office works right now, you can file one copyright application for $55 with 700, up to 750 photographs. Under visual arts opposed to photography, if the work has been published, then you can only file one copyright for one work. And it just doesn't seem to make much sense to me. And I feel like the copyright, this this was the change that occurred in, I, I believe, December 2013 or 2014. And it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And I feel like musicians and, and, and music groups, not music groups, but music Organizations and photography organizations have really come together to lobby the Copyright Office and Congress to pay attention to their particular needs in in the intellectual property arena and i don't feel like visual artists have had the same representation and so i guess i'm focusing a little bit more on that rather than what they can do but i do feel like there is you know just from from working with a lot of visual artists and from working from attending a lot of trade shows i do get the energy that everybody is out for himself and i'm not so sure if that's if that's the same in music and in photography and other artistic venues, even, you know, let's talk about, I mean, filmography, videography, Um, I would say that they're more, they're more more cohesive and unionized. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree with me, but this is just what I've seen. And so I feel like, I feel like there's, there's a gap that needs to be filled there. And that's what I wanted copyright collaborative to be. and Unfortunately, it just didn't have the, um, the oomph behind it to to get that done. But um, I still think that it's a needed It's a needed, um, something needs to fill that void.
0: Well, you mentioned the inaccuracy of some of the information about intellectual property, or we'll say IP for short, uh, about IP online. And I mean, you talked about Etsy and and essentially other forums and chat rooms. But are there solid resources you would recommend where artists um, can get the appropriate education on this? And in addition to merely sort of curing the misconceptions that are out there, are there, are there some other barriers between artists and access to the legal information and representation they need? You know, just correcting definitions or is there more to it?
1: I think that there's a barrier between legal and every every type of profession and every industry out there. But I think it's prevalent with artists because I feel like artists have a misconception about all lawyers. And I th- think that, you know, for the most per- part, they're right. But um, I don't know what the nature of that beast is, really. I, I can't speak to that. But from my experience, one of the biggest misconceptions is once you, once you express the artwork, so once you put the artwork on paper, it's protected and all of your rights are protected right there. And a poor man's copyright, um, which is your listeners don't know it's when you send yourself a copy of, of your artwork in the mail, but don't open the envelope and so it's proof of when you created it. And unfortunately, from the U.S. copyright standpoint, copyright law standpoint, that's not going to carry the day because you're not going to be entitled to if you don't have a timely um, obtained registration, you're not going to be entitled to attorney's fees or willful damages. And we can get into that if you'd like, but um, there are a lot of benefits that come from really understanding. And I feel very frustrated in the position that I'm in because the, one of the main reasons why the copyright, why Congress and the Copyright Office decided to require artists and everybody else in, um, who's, who's under that umbrella for filing copyrights, literary works, and the same, required them to obtain a, co- a copyright registration. Is to encourage people to file copyright applications, and so and so. If you don't file a copyright application in a timely fashion, you pay the, you pay a, a very very significant price. Um, at the same time, there's nothing out there. I mean, if you go to copyright.gov. There's not a lot there that's going to – at least in my experience, there's not a lot there that's going to explain things in an easy manner where it says you should file copyright applications on a regular basis. This is what you should do, and this is why you should do it. There's just nothing out there, and I feel like the Patent and Trademark Office makes leaps and bounds to – I want to say to, to push PR, but I don't feel like the Copyright Office does the same thing. And so for the Copyright Office to rely on these, these penalties to encourage people to file copyright applications, seems, it just seems, it, it seems illogical to me without doing the extra footwork of putting PR out there and saying why you should file copyright applications.
0: All right, well, so I don't know
1: if that answered your question
0: well it it's thrown a little confusion into the mix uh so in in a second we'll switch to the second part of the show uh, second segment and I'll ask for some of these differences in practical terms you know when do you uh, when do you use copyright versus trademark versus patent etc. but for now uh let's just finish off this segment with with a question that I wasn't really going to ask till later, but it seems appropriate so a little back story you know I write uh fiction and I don't have to file any copyright. Um, the copyright is implied. I, I own it. It's mine. I don't have a lot of recourse if somebody steals it and I didn't file a copyright. I can essentially claim infringement um, and maybe make them stop, but I, I can't necessarily collect damages, etc. But the mere fact that, that I wrote the thing, um, I don't even have to put the word copyright on it to make it copyrighted by me. There's an implied copyright. And my understanding is that some time ago, 70s, 60s, that artists were better protected, that laws were loosened and protections were put in place to ensure that um, artists don't have to file everything all the time. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong about that for visual artists, or has the tide turned and we're seeing that some of the past legal process for working artists around implied copyrights has has been watered down or weakened? What's, what's going on that there's this difference of this difference of perception?
1: Well, the way that I see it is there's been a perverse amalgamation of old copyright laws and new copyright laws. And so if you're trying to find out certain things about copyright, it dep- you'll see that it depends on when the work was created and when the work was published. If it was published pre-76, certain laws apply. If it published later, certain laws apply. And so in my, in my mind, what the unfortunate thing that people have taken out of that is you don't have to mark your copyrighted material as copyright Daniel Degree 2018 in order to ob- obtain copyrights, you know, rights to sue, rights to enforce against infringers. However, what people took away from that was just that. That that immediate, once you lift the pen from the paper, you have a copyright and it's yours and it's protected and you don't have to do anything else. And so I think that that's a, it's, it's an unfortunate result of the change of law because what really is, in my mind, what's really important as a litigator and as, as someone who's constantly trying to protect artists' rights, in my mind what that does is it, it does a disservice to people in the creative industry, because it you walk away with just that information and nothing else. It's almost like fake news, you know? Oh no, my copyright's protected immediately. Of course it's protected immediately, but you can't, you know, and we can talk about the Supreme court case that's coming out, but you can't, you know, if, 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 if that ruling comes out in, in a certain direction, you won't be able to sue unless you have a copyright registration in hand. And so, you know, to me, it, it, it's, Kind of a Frankenstein of a law, and I think that that law needs to be reevaluated and not just from a digital standpoint but from a standpoint of practicality because you're asking people to understand a law that's extraordinarily confusing, even to practitioners. And and like I said, like kind of pieced together. It's an amalgamation of, of of certain things, and it's very difficult to understand, especially if that's not your if that's not what your focus is. I don't I don't think many artists get into their profession saying, "Gee, I can't wait to figure out and untangle all the copyright laws and how they apply to me."
0: Well, so let's let's dive into what some of these things are because I hear that term copyright tossed around a lot, where it. Um, seems to be a general moniker, uh, incorrectly so, but a general moniker for intellectual property. And in fact, copyright is just one of the forms of a claim of intellectual property of which trademark is another form. Uh, and there's there's such a thing as a patent and, uh, and there may be others, but those are the, the big three that I know of. So let me ask you this question. Emily, when does an artist need to apply copyright versus trademark versus patent can you can you give some real world examples of when each one of those is the appropriate recourse
1: yes absolutely so that is a question that comes to me often and i even have clients who have been well seasoned and you know protect their rights whether they're artists or not and they still say i want to copyright this slogan or i want to copyright this name and so yes, I think that I think that you're correct that copyright is is a catch-all for a lot of people and not just in the artistic community. So, from a, a practical standpoint, and I I really do need to come up with a um, a good example, but from a practical standpoint, copyright is any expressed idea, so any tangible expressed idea. So, for example, text for in a book, or two-dimensional artwork that's been placed on paper or a sound recording, any expression, tangible expression that's unique to the author, that's copyrightable. And so videos, music, textual work, sculptural work, three-dimensional artwork, some jewelry designs, if they're unique enough, two-dimensional artwork, those are all under copyright. And so what you want to think of that as is a, a creative expression of something. And so, for example, um, well, I guess you know that that's the example is books are copyrightable, the text in books is copyrightable. Um, the actual artwork is copyrightable, um, movies,
0: music. But Emily, you you mentioned two-dimensional works explicitly. Does that uh, do you mean to imply that a three-dimensional work such as a, a, a bronze sculpture, is not copyrightable.
1: No, that would be considered a three dimensional or sculptural work, and that is copyrightable. Okay, good. Um, but I'm, I'm just kind of going through the list of, of things in my head. And so, two dimensional artwork, three dimensional artwork, um, movies, music, books, all of those are copyrightable. And even architectural designs are copyrightable.
0: Essentially, anything that's creative expression, I, I think exactly, is that's, what you're saying. But...
1: Exactly. Then you have patents, and patents are actually, so So from a copyright standpoint, and you'll see this in a lot of case law where it says copy, ideas are not copyrightable, where a court is trying to decide whether something is protectable under copyright law. And so one thing that's a tenet of copyright law is ideas are not protectable. Under patent law, ideas and inventions are protectable. And so if you come up with a newfangled product or a newfangled way of doing things, something, a business method or an invention of some sort, that's protectable under patent. And a lot of people get that confused. And so patents is patent I think of patents as the you know the king of intellectual property where you're you're creating a new way of doing something or you're creating a new product out of your mind and that's an idea or a concept or an invention. So that's covered by patent. And then I don't I'm not I don't think I want to get into design patents cuz that's a little confusing but it's basically the design of something that's new and a lot of in the in the early 2000s and probably still today what I saw was a lot of design patents for um purses so that's a design patent is a, the design of of a new new invented way to design something and then you have trademark and trademark is the name of a product or the name of a service so it's the source it indicates the source of that product and so if you the way i like to put it is if you open a coca-cola in a can that says coca-cola you're going to expect it to taste like coca-cola and not pepsi and so we associate in commercialism we associate certain names of goods and services with that specific good and service. And so to trademark is simply the name of a product or service where that service or product originates from.
0: So I can trademark my slogan or my company name then?
1: That's correct. Or the line of a product, if you have a name for a product line. So it does it's not it's not just the company name or a slogan, but it can also be a product name or slogan.
0: So, well, I think also the that it's not part of our normal, it's not part of our common modern English, which is a greatly reduced vocabulary. Mm. But in the old days, a trademark was clearly for a mark, a mark that you would use for trade purposes. And so uh, that's another way of thinking about it. Uh, a mark uh, can be your brand name. A mark can be your slogan or a mark can be the name of your product line, et cetera. It's a mark. Yep. It's like a signature for something. Right? Exactly. Right. And. Uh, I found that interesting when I went to uh, trademark the tagline for my company and uh, um, they said, you know, a trademark's an adjective. It's a it's a description of something. So it's a mark that describes a particular, uh, you choose a category of product or service that you can apply this to and then your trademark is whatever the trademark is of that kind of service. Exactly. So uh, I kind of got a quick definition of that. It's, it's hard to hold in your head, but it but it works. So copyright is for expression, creative expressions, but not ideas. Patent is for ideas and trademark is for names or marks. So let's talk uh, a little bit about how you go after each one of these things. So for instance, you want to go after a copyright or patent or a trademark. You know, you want to copyright your work. You want to patent an idea that you have, uh, which visual artists very often do you have patents. Uh, or you want to trademark a name, uh, an example of that is there's a particular artist duo that wanted to trademark the name of their duoness, you know, the brand that they had sort of created. What is the first step? I don't want you to elaborate on the whole process, but where does one turn? Uh, You go to a different place, a different website, a different office to copyright versus patent versus trademark?
1: So copyright, you would go to the U.S. Copyright Office, which is... um... Copyright.gov G-O-V. and for our patents and trademarks the website is uspto.gov so United States Patent and Trademark Office.gov and you can get a wealth of information from pretty much both um, but you know for, in some ways you have to dig for it but they'll they'll you know to some extent they'll walk you through the process
0: yeah and some of that information uh, can be a little bit abstruse uh to digest um you know i find that they're not they're not necessarily creative writers or or journalists when they they craft that material uh and and so i've i found that using a couple of backup sources to kind of say what are they saying uh has been helpful over time well so that brings up another sort of related issue Um, So we talk about starting with the individual, you know, with either the the copyright office or the patent trademark office, but should artists actually be starting with an attorney? Is that the first stop or do you actually think that it's it's potentially possible or even wise for an artist to uh, do some of this themselves?
1: Oh, I definitely think it's wise for artists to do some of this themselves, but I think it's important for artists to know when they need to turn to an attorney. So for example... Um, if you go to the copyright.gov, they will show you how to, I think they have a video tutorial or a PDF tutorial where they walk you through how to file a copyright application. Some of it can be a little bit daunting because it's it, it's kind of hard to understand, you know, for example, when was the work first published? Well, what does published mean? I mean, it turns out that if people want to know, published means for offer, offer for sale or license. And so... I think that copyright is a very ripe area for, co- for artists to file their own works or anybody else to file their own copyright applications. A lot of law firms charge a quite a bit, good amount of money to file copyright applications, and really it's a 15-minute exercise for those who know how to do it or have done a couple um, and maybe an hour exercise for, for newbies to go to the website, sign up for the electronic copyright offices for a login and then file the application and, you know, follow the directions. I think that trademark can be a, a bit trickier and I've had more clients fall on, on their shoelaces in that area. Um, and I think that trademark can be sufficiently nuanced where you know enough. It's, it's, a, it's a very good area for me to say or for others to say, I know just enough to be dangerous. And so I think that for a trademark, it's oftentimes a good idea to contact a, a trademark attorney to do trademark work. And then for patent, I think that it's almost exclusively you want to hire. If it's an important invention that you've come up with and you really want to create a company around it and you, you really want to create some money, you know, get some money, generate some, some revenue out of it, I think it's worth it to, to hire a, a patent attorney. Because that can be an extraordinarily confusing area. And then when you're talking licensing, I think that it's extraordinarily important for artists to contact attorneys to negotiate and review any any licensing agreements.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's um, the the copyright thing. It's pretty doable by most people also. I mean, uh, it's just uh, once you've done it once, it gets faster and simpler and easier. Exactly. The trademark thing, I actually did a little bit of a hack. I, I did pay a fairly exorbitant fee, I thought, to um, have somebody file my first trademark. And, and then I just carefully watched and studied what they did. And had the back and forth, listened to the logic and the reasoning. Here's why I'm doing this. Here are the possible ins and outs. Here's why we may have to wait. Here's what will happen if the uh, if the office comes back and and you know disputes some aspect of it. And so after that, I started filing my own trademarks, but with the intention that should there be any pushback from the trademark office at some point along the way, you know they throw up a roadblock. That's the point I engaged the attorney. This is what I've already filed, and and uh just because uh for me the the cost was was really a factor yeah i wonder though how quickly uh people need to apply for some of these protections do you think after they make the work so when we're talking about making the work obviously that's copyright do they need to copyright it immediately um you know and when's the appropriate moment the the before they show it after they show it cuz you said that uh, you use that phrase anything that was offered for sale so when's the right moment and how soon
1: that's a really really good question and that's one of my favorite questions because it's really important to know this because artists and small companies have limited funds and so you want to put those funds where they're most important and so um in my in my legal opinion the most important thing you can do is obviously a a patent if you have a patentable um matter subject matter a device that sort of thing then you want to get that patented because once you once you publish that work, as it, as it were, and put it out into the public, you have one year to file a patent, or you cannot file a patent in the United States, and you can't protect it via patent. And so that's, that's crucial, because the patent protection lasts for 17 years. So you, you, know, you can get, gain quite a bit of revenue before your uh, competitors can come along and steal your work or your invention and, and market it themselves. Similarly crucial is copyright, and that's always been my bone to pick is, you know, artists really need to copyright their works, I would say immediately. And so the way to do a quick rundown, the way that the Copyright Office used to work with visual art works, is if the works, if you say you had a collection of works and those works were all somewhat cohesive, um, if you had drawn characters for Um, for a new comic book that were all in the same story or if you had a new, you know, design line that was coming out for textiles and they were all somewhat cohesive like a spring line. You could, even if those were published, you could put them in, in under one copyright application and you could file those under one copyright application so long as they were published on the same date and created in the same year. As I mentioned in December of, and I can't remember whether it was 2013 or 2014, to my chagrin, the Copyright Office, for some reason, and I still don't know why, changed that rule. And so only pertaining to visual art, if the work has been published, you need to file a copyright application for that one work, and you can't include more than one work in that copyright application. And so when you're an artist and you're creating multiple, multiple works every year, it can be quite a daunting exercise, not only from a a time point of view, but also from a financial standpoint to file a copyright application for each of your works that you're putting out there. And so what I recommend to people is before you publish a work, so before you take a work and put it on your website for sale – or even just post it on your website before you take it to a trade show and offer it for sale or for license before you send it to a potential licensee, take that group, take that collection of works that's somehow cohesive and file them under one copyright application. So take your entire spring line that you're working on right now. Once it's done, File a copyright application. It takes, you know, once you get it down, like you said, it, it you get it gets faster and faster and you can do it in within fifteen minutes. And therefore you're saving time and you're saving money. But from a copyright standpoint, from a litigation standpoint, if you do not have a copyright application filed before infringement begins or within three months of publication, you won't be entitled to what are known as statutory damages under the copyright law or attorney's fees. And for um, statutory damages, for non-willful infringement, statutory damages can be up to $30,000. And for willful infringement, statutory damages can be up to $150,000. And so, if you don't have a timely obtained regist- copyright registration, even if it's willful infringement and it's clear, I mean, you've got the smoking gun, you still can't go after that infringer for willful damages, which is ridiculous, but it's the law. And so it's really important to file your copyright applications really either before the works are published and give, you know shown to the public and the public has access to them, or within three months of your publication of those works. It's crucial. And when I say from a litigation standpoint, I want to clarify that because I know that artists aren't looking forward to going into litigation, how I don't even like going into litigation. But when you When you could be potentially entitled to attorneys' fees and statutory damages, you're much more likely to settle a case easy peasy with no problems against an infringer and get the, you know, somewhat close to the amount of damages you're looking for, if you've got that registration leverage and you can say, hey, we can drag this out for the next two years, but I'm going to get my attorney's fees because your infringement was so willful and you're, you know, so clear and no no judge would not award attorney's fees in this case. And so it can be that registration can actually be used, used as leverage to avoid litigation, which I think is key in this area eighty five percent of copyright infringement cases don't go to court don't go to trial and so I think it's really, really important for artists to to get those those extra benefits, and especially artists will find that a lot of attorneys, a lot of intellectual property attorneys are willing to work on a contingency basis the you know uh, you, I don't get money unless we get money for you basis from a copyright standpoint, especially if attorney's fees and willful damages or statutory damages are on the on the line.
0: Well, uh, I want to ask a quick point of clarification and then uh, one more significant question to this area, and then I would uh, move on to infringement. So the quick question is this. Um, I, I thought I heard you say that they changed the law and you couldn't register um, a collection of of multiple works anymore. You had to register them individually. And then I, I thought I heard you say, well, we have to, uh, it's a good idea to register your whole spring line as a collection of works. So what's the rule? Can I register a collection of works? Does it have to be more than five works? What's, what can I do and what can't I?
1: I'm sorry, I wasn't clear. So the rule changed from, um, if the works were published, then they had to be filed individually. And so you can file for a collection of works so long as they haven't been published. Published means offered for sale or licensed.
0: Right. So the the moment you, in in artist terminology, essentially, if you put it up at a show, and that implies that this art this work is for sale, then that is the equivalent of publication. Right. If you hand it off to your gallerist. So I lied. I'm going to ask you two, um, two of these questions um, since. I'm mentioning a gallerist. I think what a lot of people do, if they have gallery representation, they simply assume that the gallerist is doing all of this, is copywriting those works. And they just sort of set it and forget it. The gallerist says, I'll take care of everything. And uh, and so that's it. Um, do you have any experience with this? Is it your advice or, or what observation have you made Is that true if in in 90% of cases, if, if I have a gallerist, I just hand it to the gallerist and they're always copywriting it? Or do I still need to be thinking about this if I have a gallerist and doing something about it?
1: I would definitely follow up on that because I've reviewed several gallery agreements and representation agreements and I haven't seen that. That they're going to handle the copyrights. I think that in book publishing, that's certainly something that will be taken care of where you almost don't have to look back to see if it's been done because they'll take care of it. But I've never seen an agreement with a gallerist where they'll say they take care of the copyrights. But the thing about it is, is that if they say they will and they don't, you're still on the line for all those potential damages, you know, you're, you're the one who's not going to get those damages. So I've even seen cases where an artist hired an attorney, and the attorney said, oh, I'll take care of that copyright application. Well, he never did. And she, therefore, she, she got infringed, she, her works were infringed, and she wasn't entitled to statutory damages. And she could have sued that attorney for, for malpractice. And so I would not assume anything around copyright. I would make sure, and you can do a simple search on the copyright.gov and see if your name comes up, see if your company name comes up as a, as a, as a registration. They have a very searchable database. And so I would definitely check in with the gallerist, and I would definitely check the copyright website. And, and another thing is is that if an application is filed, a registration should issue. And the Copyright Office is so behind and has been for years um, very backed up and so usually it takes about 8 months to 15 months for a copyright registration to issue but if your gallerist is filing copyright applications for you, you number one want to make sure that it's being filed properly and that the information is accurate and number two you should be the one who holds the copyright registration unless it's owned by your gallerist which I can't imagine
0: Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of this uh, agreeing to file copyright for the artist either because I think the focus of a lot of gallerists is um, to sell the immediate work in hand and not necessarily to protect the long term intellectual property rights of the artist if uh, images of that work are stolen and turn up on t shirts in China or uh, you, as a book cover in the Netherlands or something like that and potentially illustrating something you don't want. So I'm not saying that galleries are ill intentioned, but um, it's sort of like a real estate agent. You know, they're there to. Either sell or help you purchase a home, but not necessarily to ensure that the boiler is going to last you another twenty years, et cetera. And so there's just these other things you need to be looking out for for yourself, regardless. So I, I think that brings us uh, to my last question in this area, uh, and then we'll move on to infringing. So. You've you've outlined very adamantly the risks of not filing a copyright as being uh, the inability to collect damages, uh, that being the chief loss there, the inability to enforce damages, collect damages in the case of infringement. And yet, you know, we we went back, if we go back to that question of, isn't my work copyrighted already, and do I really have to file for it to be copyrighted? You didn't dismiss that as, as though that were not true. You simply said that, yes, but that leaves a lot of misconceptions. And one of the th- misconceptions is that somehow you'll be able to enforce the copyright. You you would be able to enforce it in order to, I think, stop someone from infringing. You, you'd be able to get a takedown order, you know, to done to get it off their website, but you wouldn't be able to collect anything. So do you find, is is that accurate? And, and either way, do you find that, there are cases where the work of doing all the copyrights for every work the artist is doing, especially if it's an emerging artist who really doesn't have two cents to put together to buy, you know, the paints they need, et cetera. Do you find that there are cases where you'd advise just going ahead and, and riding along and, and either copywriting those works later or belaying that until um, you're you're in a more financially stable um, relationship with your art business?
1: Well, um, I think I heard several questions in there, and so I'll start with the the idea that uh, the copyright immediately and automatically invests in the work. And so to answer that question, that is true. And if you actually look up the copyright office's old symbol, it was a, a pen lifting from paper. And so, as I mentioned before, once the pen lifts from the paper, you've got a copyrightable work. I mean, you could do a squiggle and, and lift the pen from the paper, and automatically your work is copyrighted. But that doesn't uh, that doesn't give you many benefits. And so, you also mentioned the idea that artists can get takedowns from various websites and ISPs, and and um, you know get a DMCA takedown. And that's interesting because if you – and I'm going to give you the the stock lawyer response on that. I think it depends because if you go to certain websites such as Alibaba, which is a very well-known carrier of infringing works, they usually won't take down the work unless you produce a copyright registration or a trademark registration. And so it's getting – I think that it's getting harder and harder to get – and I think it will continue to get more difficult and more stringent in in getting works taken down unless you have a registration. It's very easy to say here's my registration take that work down. And and so I think that I think that it depends. I think it depends on where your work shows up and I think that that's a big risk to take. Not only are you taking the risk that somebody won't infringe your work, but then You know, plan B is where it's going to end up and who's going to be infringing it. You know, if it's Etsy, maybe it'll be a little bit easier to take down. But if it's Alibaba, it's not going to be so easy to take it down. And I think that it's going to get more and more difficult to get infringing works taken down without a registration. And I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that law changed where you had to submit evidence of of, a registered work. And then finally, you said the artist who's, you know, the starving artist who can't Afford the copyright application. And what I would say to that is protect your best selling work. It's always the best selling works that get knocked off. So if you're a jewelry designer, for example, and you've designed a unique jewelry design, get that copyright that. pay the thirty five dollars fee to copyright that. It is I mean, I think it's really important for artists to understand that that's the foundation of their business, their their creative expression. And it's almost like it's almost like a furniture store not taking out insurance on, you know, uh, renter's insurance or insurance on their inventory. I mean, if that's gone, you've got nothing left. And so I just think it's so important for the investment to be in the right place and and and. I'm 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 also adamant about artists spending money in the right places. And so a lot of artists will come to me or small businesses will come to me and say, "I want to file a trademark." And I'll, you know, we'll, we'll get to talking and it turns out that they have copyrightable works that are really important to their business. And I'll say, "You need to make the priority your copyright because trademark, there's common law rights there. Copyright, it's it's going to be difficult to enforce that copyright and I think it's going to get more difficult." if the uh, application isn't timely filed. And so I think it's really important to take for artists to take a step back and look at where they're spending their money from a legal standpoint, if they're spending any money at all. But I think that, you know, if a, if a new artist who's got, you know, two nickels to rub together, just has to protect something, I would say, protect your best sellers.
0: Uh, Yeah. I think that's, that's good advice. Uh, And of course, you know, our goal at the Clark Healings Fund is to overcome the myth that artists uh, are inherently starving artists or need to starve that, you know, we, we call this the thriving artist podcast for that reason, but we understand that it's a journey for some people. So that's why I ask, you know, Mm -hmm. what and I think your, your solution of prioritize the best stuff uh, works quite well. So I like that. Well um so now I want to ask you um, a question I hope you'll enjoy I'm eager to hear your answer which is what what is the uh, biggest issue with infringement right now today and w- what are we seeing happen the most you know if is, what are you seeing that's so common that artists are just dealing with it one after another
1: <laughs> um I will enjoy that question actually um I would say that it is the, uh, it's the, the, you know, obviously I'm going to tell you that it's the internet and what's going on and, and all the developments. I think that it is, well, I've had a lot of artists come to me complaining about t-shirt companies and the like online who, uh, let me, let me take a step back. I think that any industry where your turnover for production is, the faster it is, the more it's going to affect the creative industry from an infringement standpoint. And so it used to be something along the lines of a big box store who did production quickly, you know, once or twice a quarter, maybe twice a season say, Oh, yep, you're right. We stole your design. Mea culpa. We'll pull, you know, we'll sell the rest of it. Well, here's a thousand dollars for your, for your trouble. And then pull the line and start producing something else because they were using factories in China. And it was no problem for them to just stop production on something and start on something else, as opposed to a small artist who production is, you know, production is, 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 is quite difficult and quite time consuming and thought consuming. Now you've got production occurring at a supply and demand level. And so it's almost like, well, we're not going to print the shirt until somebody orders it. And so that production is happening so quickly that artists cannot keep up with it, especially since it's on the Internet. And I think that that is going to be an interesting area of IP law to watch, which is the, you know, any goods production, any consumable good that you know, carries artwork or somewhat carries intellectual property that can be started and stopped so quickly from a production standpoint. And I'm, you know, I've, I've been involved in cases where it's essentially a case of whack-a-mole and it's extremely frustrating. I mean, an artist can spend 25 hours a day filing takedowns and having them have absolutely no effect whatsoever. And so it's an extremely frustrating situation that artists find themselves in, and I think it's a I think it's it's quite novel from a standpoint of infringement. I think this is a new area that we're going into where DMCA takedowns just aren't effective. That that's from my standpoint. I'm sure you'd hear something completely different from an ent- entertainment attorney who deals with music but from my standpoint any two-dimensional artist that is what they're dealing with on on a daily if not hourly situation and and I think that w- once you exploit your work online it's almost it's almost like sending your work to China to be m- manufactured because you've got so many people out there who have software that's just going to st- steal the artwork without a second look back it's not even a person anymore it's the software that does it well so it'll be interesting to see what develops there
0: yeah in the in writing you know we call that the print-on-demand pod phenomenon that uh, you can instead of uh, the old days where you you if you want to self-publish, you buy several thousand books and you have to figure out where to warehouse them. They'll charge you a fee for that, by the way, if you want. <laughs> They'll gladly take your money. We'll warehouse them for you. We got storage. Uh, or you can uh, you can store them in your basement and let them get moldy as you hand them out to friends at Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Bill, for your latest self-published book. <laughs> but but those situations, that sell, that same print-on-demand technology, that that means they don't have to store the books. They can print individual items uh, on demand, almost in the way that a 3D printer can uh, can print a gun on demand, uh, just a one-off, right? And then print on the very next run, can switch templates and, and print a piece of furniture. Well, I see that on eBay. So on eBay, the, you can actually find works of artists by what I would call not mastered, we're not talking about Van Gogh. I'm sure somebody's doing it, but we're talking about somebody, you know, less known than Van Gogh. They were a middle-class artist. They had a 40-year run in the United States or something like that. They're now a legacy artist. And you can actually get some amazing paintings by those artists given the fact that they're not alive and that those paintings have already been sold at least once and you know which museum they're hanging in so it can't be the same painting and what it is is someone's offering to paint it on demand and whether they're doing that with a machine painter you know that sort of um that applies the paint based on a a visual template or you know like almost like g clay technology or whether they're they're actually employing a painter to do it. They're essentially offering to to steal the work of the artist and the and of the estate and you know the uh, widows and widowers of the and children of the artist, the orphans of the artist. To by you pay the fee and we'll create it on demand. It's not it doesn't exist yet. We haven't done anything wrong yet. But in that short space, they can mail you a piece, collect their ten grand, and uh, and then create a different eBay account. And you know the whole. Uh, all evidence of the transaction, other than y- your side of it, is is pretty much gone within a few minutes. So I see right. that a and lot. Right,
1: and from a co- from a copyright standpoint, that's the equivalent of premeditated murder.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's it's there's no there's no question of the intentionality of it. It's just a matter of can you can you enforce it in time? Uh, right. The enforceability would be there, except for the barrier of of international law, the differences in copyright protections. Uh, the barrier of language and finding the original seller and the speed at which they can act. Uh, so that's an interesting... And
1: then disappear as well.
0: Exactly. So that's an interesting uh, quint of problems. Um, you know, I, I figured you were going to say the big box stores, and but that was a good explanation also of, of how big box stores do this. And It's kind of appalling, actually. And and it makes me wonder. Well, big
1: box stores actually—that was kind of that was kind of ten years ago, and I think that they've learned their lesson because of Facebook and social media and artists taking them to shame. Um, And I think that they've stopped it. You know, you'll see, for example, West Elm has their little artist corner, you know, in their in their catalog. And so I think that they've they've cut down quite a bit. You know, at least the distinguishable big box stores. So now it's more online.
0: Yeah, we don't necessarily know about the ones that... uh, I can't mention any names, but you know, there are these big-box stores that I would call hyper-discount big-box stores. And there's every kind of counterfeit there of everything, you know, shoes and clothes and bags. And I mean, it's just so obvious. You pick up a pair of Nikes and they weigh less than a stick of butter. And you're like, these are not Nikes, (laughs) you know, and I don't care. I don't have to look any further. I don't have to study the label and and see if it's Nike with an EY or anything. It's it's uh, it's fake and uh, it's just out in the open it's like the street vendors in New York you know there's some guy selling me a video on the table at least I know what I'm getting or or the <laughs> the, the gucky bags with the two k's yeah. and the gucci you know I I or the Ron X watch but yeah it's amazing how would they not steal art and I think a lot of artists wonder when is the you know I don't I can't picture my art being stolen when is when is that likely to happen where I see a lot of it is art that looks good on a calendar or a mug, little characters from art or uh, personas you've created, or scenes that are sort of you know Americana or kitschish. I see that stuff, and the problem with it is it's not signed, it's not labeled, it doesn't say who drew it. But that's a whole larger social issue that we have this sort of pop commercial art uh, with no credit to the original artist, as though either it's not really art or there's some kind of generic no name artist there, no, no artist with no name, no face, or that it's we just don't need to credit the artist. Um, so that, that's a whole other issue, probably too big to, to open. No, but, I,
1: I absolutely well, agree. I think that those are the anonymous products that people think aren't harmful. And it, it, it's quite harmful. To the artist exactly not only from a financial standpoint but from a reputation
0: standpoint exactly um, <laughs> yeah it drives me up the wall <laughs> so, um yeah i just i walk out of the stores I'm, I'm not a very happy guy when i go into those places <laughs> um well so uh, moving on to uh filing uh i mean past filing so we've talked a lot about filing and a lot about infringement and what when you f- file for a particular type of intellectual property Versus another, but what else besides filing, a can or should an art business do to prevent a theft of their intellectual property?
1: So one thing I came up with with for Copyright Collaborative was I found a lot of clients who were facing the situation of, and let's genericize it a little bit, attending an art show for ten to twenty thousand dollars, having a big box store or a big box company and not even a big box, just a big company, approach them and say, oh, we love your works. These are beautiful. We'd love to license them from you. From you, Can you send us a couple of images? And the artist, not knowing any better, number one, and number two, trying to make up that $20,000 that they spent at the trade show, on the trade show, says absolutely and shoots them out all, every single image they have and says, take your pick. and then the artist waits and the company doesn't get back to them and then the artist starts stalking the company and saying when are you going to start licensing my designs when are we going to do this licensing agreement and the company says oh you know what we decided not to go with your work we like it but it's just not what we have in mind and Five months, four months later, the artist opens up the company's catalog, and voila, there is their artwork. And so that is the infringement that you mentioned, quote, unquote, the big box store infringement that I was talking about that kind of and died out 10 years ago once artists understood that they could just post a picture of the infringing item and their item and say, this is from you know Sears, and this is mine, and mine was created in 2012, and this one showed up in 2016. Use your brain. Let's figure this one out. And so what I created from Copyright Collaborative, out of Copyright Collaborative, one of the, uh, the deterrents I tried to use, and I use it for my clients as well, is if, one of, if a company asks you for – or anybody asks you for images of your work, have them sign a half-page agreement that says, I understand that I'm getting these works, you know, I'm accessing these works. And they are I'm you know, they're only given being given to me for the purposes of entering into a licensing agreement or considering, you know, a business arrangement with the artist and that I won't use them for any other purposes. And so I think that the logic that I came up with for that was, number one, best case scenario, you've got a signed document from a company that says we had access to your works, which is one of the elements of copyright infringement that needs to be proven. Worst case scenario, the company says, no, we're not signing that, or they send you their NDA for some reason, and you know our gun is bigger than yours kind of situation. Worst case scenario, they don't sign it, but they know that you know what your rights are. That, I think, is the most important thing an artist can do, and it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. Is to let people know what your rights are. If you're putting up a sign with your company name and with a C in a circle, somebody's going to take advantage of you because they know that you're trying to protect your work and you don't know what you're doing. That's that would be a trademark sign symbol, not a copyright symbol. And so, you know, bone up and get uh, empowerment. You know, knowledge is empowerment, and so get the knowledge, even the basic knowledge. And they and you know anybody to plug my you know copyright collaborative. The information is, is there, and you can find the information. You just have to make sure it's the right information. And so I think understanding your rights and letting other people know, the companies you're doing business with and transactions with, let them know that you know your rights, even with a simple one-paragraph thing that says, this is only being transmitted to you for the purpose purposes of entering into an, a business relationship. I think that, that that goes very far to deter infringement. Oh, this isn't somebody we want to mess with. They probably register their work. We probably don't want to fool with them because, they're at the you know, at the very least, they're going to be paying attention and post about us on social media. And so I think that I think that that's the best thing.
0: Well, two quick things about that. Two quick things about that. One is, couldn't you just refuse to give out high resolution images of your work for inspection like that. I mean, instead of giving out the, the 8,000 pixel wide you know, 300 DPI version, you give out a 75 uh, DPI, uh, 800 pixel version, that's a a compressed JPEG. And uh, if they say we really need the high res, it's pretty clear they're trying to steal from you. No one needs the high res unless they're intending to print them right now, you know, or use them in a printing environment. So that's the first question is couldn't you just give that or or put all put a watermark on your images or put your images in some sort of catalog that's lower resolution where you're getting a you know a sheet of them instead of the individual image files. And the second is it almost sounds like when you describe this that the question of intentionality is a foregone conclusion for you that that You don't even doubt a little bit that a lot of these people are really just trying to steal the artist's work when you say, well, this will let them know to move on to the next guy. What you're sort of saying is they're trying to steal from you and, you you know, you actually need to make them move on to the next guy. (laughs) Well,
1: so, so to answer the first question, um, I wish that I could say, absolutely, that's perfect and nothing will happen after that. The problem is, is there has been, software has been developed that can take low-res images and create high-res images out of them. So that's the first thing. and And you can bet that any serial infringer is going to have that software or access to that software. And so... Yeah. Do I think that that should be done and taken care? You know, do that. Don't send your high-res images. Absolutely, absolutely. Send them as a PDF. You know, catalog or or page. Um, I think that that's a brilliant idea as well, and and one that many artists take advantage of. I I hope. And then for the second, answering the second question, I I think I just I grew up quote unquote, in this area of law at the wrong time because I have such a I'm very cynical of these companies because I, I, I it was almost as if in the early 2000s, it was part of their business model a, you know, a cost benefit analysis of stealing artwork from artists. It was so prevalent. I mean, the stories that I would hear that came out of trade shows were just ridiculous. I one of my clients told me a story about how this some gentleman approached her and, you know, he was he was some Low-level executive, I guess, from from one of those companies, one of those fancy big-box companies, and said, "Look, if you don't license us your artwork, we're just going to steal it, anyways." And so that's kind of what I grew, what I legally grew up with. And so it's very difficult for me to move, to move away from that. And I think that the reason why I get so angry and adamant, uh, angry and passionate about it, is because I feel like there's it's so obviously there. Like you said, it's kind of like you know, selling purses, selling Gucci purses on, on in Chinatown. It's so obviously there, but it takes a seven jeans, it takes a Kate Spade, it takes a, a well-known designer or artist to bring the public's attention to that. And I think it's really unfortunate. And I think that I think it erodes our culture of art in this society because we place such, we pretend to place such a huge value on arts and culture, but then everybody wants their, you know, their logos designed for free. And everybody wants their artwork designed for $10 and everybody doesn't care that an artist is being knocked off. And so, you know, it's just it's just a really unfortunate thing. And I guess it's, you know, it's just reality. But when you're in this and you have clients who are getting knocked off left and right and literally it's a game of whack-a-mole, it's very difficult to not be cynical about the state of affairs and infringement. And I think that, unfortunately, it's just going to constantly evolve into a new thing. You know, it, it used to be the fake Gucci bag in China on Canal Street. And now, then it moved into, you know, the, the fancy larger box stores, big box stores, knocking artists off left and right and and um, paying them off, you know, $1,000 here, $5,000 there. And now it's moving into really heavy China infringement and really heavy even U.S. infringement online. So it's always going to be there. It just, I think that, I think that, and maybe this is just an ideological way of viewing it, but I think that if artists, if two-dimensional visual artists could come together and really get armed with the knowledge to fight and to deter her infringement in the ways that we discussed, I think that, that things would be a little bit better and it would, they wouldn't be so taken advantage of.
0: You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes or wherever you tune in. For more information on Emily's work, visit emilyesquire.com or copyrightcollaborative.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Emily. It's been really great having you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. to